Well, it's always a pleasure for me to have contact with Crescent Church. I'm sorry I'm not able to be with you in person, uh, but this is a pretty good second best. Uh, and you've set me a challenging subject uh, this evening uh, to look at the morality of the invasion of Canaan. You've obviously had an interesting uh, session looking at the book of Joshua, one of the inspiring books of the Old Testament. Uh, and now we come just to look at the general moral issue that surrounds the uh, ancient invasion of Canaan. And so I'm going to invite you to listen as I read to you from the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 9, where in anticipation of this event, the Lord speaks to his people. So here's the word of God as we find it in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and reading from verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anakites, you know about them and have heard it said, who can stand against the Anakites? Be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then, that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of Holy Scripture. Now, of all the subjects that you've been considering over the last number of weeks, this is unquestionably the most difficult subject. Um, and it is part of the larger question of evil in the world, of war, eh, of destruction, and it is difficult to deal with. It is interesting that the great Christian apologist C.S. Lewis was actually led from atheism to faith because he considered this whole moral issue of why there is evil in the world. And on one occasion, in his own inimitable way, he said, I could never have recognised a crooked line if I hadn't seen a straight line. In other words, his abhorrence of evil in the world was part of an inner moral sense that had to have come from somewhere. And that was part of his journey towards faith in Christ. Uh, in the course of this pandemic uh, and trying to understand something of God's purpose in it, um, I was reminded of the other words of C.S. Lewis when he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, and he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so even in the evil of the world, and in our subject tonight, the invasion of uh, Canaan, God is speaking to them and speaking to the world with important messages that we ignore at our peril. Now, of course, this has become a happy hunting ground for atheist objections to Christian faith. Uh, 
Um, and I would like to pay tribute to a book by John Lennox, uh, Gunning for God. And I have drawn pretty heavily on that book for tonight's message. I commend it to you, as I do all of John Lennox's writings. Uh, and in chapter five of that book, in particular, chapter headed, Is God a Despot? He deals at great length with the issues in the Old Testament, particularly the militarism that characterized much of the Old Testament uh, and this particular issue of the invasion of Canaan. I commend that chapter to you if you want to follow this up. Now, when I listen to the atheists complaining about the evil in the world, I do sympathize uh, with their dilemma because for Christians, it is a challenge as well to explain why there is wickedness and evil in the world that God has created. And I suppose if we're being honest, there is no ultimate answer to that. Uh, it is for Christians a matter of faith that we believe ultimately God knows what he is doing and he permits things that he has not decreed um, because these are lost in a greater purpose. But if you think a little more carefully about the atheist objection to this, why would God exist if there is evil in the world? I suppose there are really only three conclusions you can come to from their point of view. One is uh, that there is no God at all. And that is an impossible position to sustain. The beauty, the detail, the design of the universe, the very fact of our consciousness and existence itself makes that a philosophically incoherent conclusion. The second is to say, well, God is malevolent uh, and God brings evil into the world because that is part of his nature. And to Christians, of course, that is an abhorrent thought. Uh, and it is a thought that doesn't stand scrutiny of world history, of Bible history, of Christian history. Uh, we are not in a world with a malevolent God. And that leads you to the third possibility, which is that God is good. And that, of course, is a firm Christian conviction. He is good, but his ways are beyond our understanding. And so we accept that whatever the circumstances, God knows what he is doing. And in that sense, we bow to his sovereignty. As you'll find in John Lennox's treatment of this, the atheist objection about evil um, it is inconsistent and incoherent. And once again, I commend his detailed treatment of that to you. Now, when we come to think of the invasion of Canaan, I'd like to suggest that there are three general issues that surround this matter. And the first is what I'm going to call God's divine intention. Uh, the invasion of Canaan was clearly part of his plan. It goes back to his promise to Abraham and to the patriarchs that one day they would possess the land of Canaan. Um, and it was fulfilled under the leadership of Joshua. The people were ambivalent about going into Canaan. Uh, they complained about it, but it was clearly God's purpose. And it is a reminder that all of history is in God's hands. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 32, Daniel asserts in his time, the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And so when we look at the course of world history, when we look at the uh, nature of our world today, Christians believe that the distribution and ownership and possession of nations is ultimately a matter of divine intention and a matter of divine promise. 
when I was reading about the uh, invasion of Canaan, um, the possession of the land, and then, of course, some centuries later, uh, the loss of the land as the nation was exiled into Babylon, um, I was thinking about some events that happened within my lifetime after the Second World War and as a reaction to the terrible persecution of the Jewish people in Nazi Germany, um, the United Nations and the nations of the world agreed that Israel should have a homeland. And in 1948, Israel returned to the land uh, that God had given them. Of course, that was controversial at the time, remains controversial today, and remains one of the flashpoints in the world between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But I remember when I was a student in 1967 during the Six-Day War, when I was working at my bench in a chemistry lab, one of my colleagues said, come into the room for a minute and listen to uh, this news report on the radio. And it was to say that uh, the Israeli forces had taken the whole city of Jerusalem. Up to that point, Jerusalem was a divided city, and the Israeli forces took the old city of Jerusalem in its entirety. And Moshe Dayan, the defence minister at the time, the, the general rather who led the Israeli forces, said, Today we have been reunited with our most holy places, never to be separated from them again. And you know, there is a prophecy of Jesus that is recorded in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Looking ahead to the destruction of Jerusalem in the year AD 70, he said, Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And what I found uncanny about that was in 1967, Jerusalem, for the first time in 20 centuries, was no longer trodden down by the Gentiles. And that has to be significant in light of the prophecy that Jesus made about the end times. Now, of course, we can't know for sure that Jerusalem will remain the possession of the Jewish people into the future, but it looks like it. And so around Canaan, Israel, Jerusalem, there is a special sense of the purposes of God. Now, the second point I'd like to make is that uh, this invasion of Canaan is about national culture. There is, in the conflict between Israel and the land of Canaan, a clash of cultures. Uh, Israel was the nation that carried the Ten Commandments, the revelation of God about how life was to be conducted at a national and at a personal level. They confronted a culture that had pagan gods, uh, not quite a secular society, but a pagan society that worshipped idols and, for example, Baal worship. And it was the hideous practices of Canaan that was part of the reason for the invasion of that land. The land of Canaan, in its pursuit of idol worship, practiced one of the most horrific phenomena in human history, which is the sacrifice of young children to appease the gods. And so in that context, this battle is not just about military possession, it is a battle about culture, about the way in which a society organises itself. And over and over again, the Lord says that the invasion of Canaan, and we read it in our passage, is because of the wickedness of these nations. And this is God acting in judgment on the practice and culture of the nations that possessed the land of Canaan. 
There is a third point to, to think about in this, and it is, as well as national culture, um, there is the whole question of personal morality. And while we may look upon this passage as representing a cruel side to Israel's history, the reality is that in personal relationships, the Jewish people were instructed to be kind to the foreigner, to make provision for the stranger. In the Old Testament, it talks about God executing justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner because you were sojourners in Israel. And the fact that the invasion of Canaan does not appear at first sight to have been characterized either by the normal rules of war or by these customary positive attitudes to aliens shows that it was a very exceptional incurrence indeed. So that forms a general background to the study of this uh, controversial matter. God's intention for the nations, always. Uh, the national culture of nations will draw either the blessing or the judgment of God. And then at a personal level, the Israelites were encouraged to be kind to the stranger. And that, of course, would be God's intention for all the nations. So let's move on to think about the invasion itself and think about the morality of this uh, conquest. The invasion of Canaan is quite explicit. There's no doubt about it. The, the nations were encouraged, the, the nation of Israel was encouraged to take this land and to possess it as their own. And the language for the invasion is quite uncompromising. They were to enter the land, they were to destroy the fortifications, they were to score a decisive victory over the people of Canaan. Now this, of course, is, uh, is challenging because um, it does give us a sense as Christians that there's something uh, not quite right about the instructions for taking the land of Canaan. Well, it is a matter of uh, international relations that nations sometimes have to use force against each other. Uh, in this country, where we stood alone in the Second World War against the most awful fascist tyranny, uh, a war that came perhaps closest to being a just war, uh, we understand that there comes a point at which force and war uh, becomes necessary. And we need to understand that this explicit command of the Lord to take Canaan uh, is in fact, and this is my second point, it is an exceptional occurrence in the military history of Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy, from which we read in chapter 20, uh, you would be able to find the rules that were to characterize Israel when they went to war. For their time, and this is John Lennox's uh, writing I'm quoting from, they were remarkably humanitarian. For instance, men were excused military duty if they had just become engaged, bought a house, planted a vineyard, or even if they were just fearful of the consequences of war. In addition, war was only justifiable as a last resort. And in the first instance, the army was encouraged to sue for peace wherever possible. And when they did go to war, it was noteworthy that women and children were to be spared, and the army was not 
uh, to be engaged in the wanton destruction of the trees and of the nature, the natural uh, life of the country. Lord Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth, points out that the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy contain the world's first environmental legislation. So we are not to think of the nation of Israel as a bloodthirsty, warlike nation that, that got, went into war just on the merest pretext. The rules of war in the Old Testament were pretty precise and prohibited the wanton destruction of life and of property. But in this case, it appears to have been exceptional. And the nation were told to go into the land and not to spare it, but to take it and to drive out the Canaanites completely. And this, I think, is uh, what we find a little difficult. Now, it is interesting that some scholars of the Hebrew Bible who have studied this have come to the conclusion that we can overread the language of these passages. So, for example, the repeated phrases about utterly destroying and sparing nothing actually, in its time, meant to score a decisive victory. Clearly, when you read through the book of Joshua and the later parts of the Old Testament, it is clear that not all the Canaanites were annihilated because there were still plenty of them in the land. It was that in this war, the Israelites had to score a decisive victory rather than to eliminate every last Canaanite that they came across. And while that may offer only modest comfort to those who are worried about this, I think if you think back, for example, to the military campaigns of the Second World War and to the latter part of the war where the Allies scored a decisive victory over the Axis forces in Europe, they had to use the most desperate force to do that. It was not that they set out to destroy every inhabitant of Germany, but they did use air power and land power in a decisively destructive way in order to bring the war to an end. I suppose you might even see that in the decision of the American President Truman in August 1945 to use two atomic weapons to bring the war in Japan to an end. And although these were horrific moments and the death toll was dreadful, it was not nearly as much as it would have been had the Americans and their allies had to mount a land invasion of Japan. So militarists understand this. They understand that if you are faced with the ultimate disaster of war, then what you must do is you must use decisive force to bring it to an end as quickly as possible. And there is, I suggest to you, a degree of morality in that. When we worry about the numbers of the Canaanites that were killed when the uh, uh, Israelites invaded the land, I sometimes think more people would have been killed in 15 minutes of an Allied air raid over Germany in the mid-1940s. And, and while, as a nation, we still have a slightly uneasy conscience about what happened then, we understand that this was necessary and this had to be done. So let me just recap on that. The instruction of the Lord to invade Canaan was certainly explicit. And in terms of uh, the conduct of that campaign, it was indeed exceptional.
But the third point I'd want to make is that it was an example. It was exemplary in the sense that it was a message not only to the Canaanites, but to the other nations around them, that there is a limit to God's tolerance of their pagan and evil practices. And he will, in his time, step in and in a very real sense make an example of a nation so that other nations, and this is what happened, other nations around the land of Canaan became fearful of the Israelites for they realised that the way in which the Canaanites had been dealt with was something that could happen to them. And in that sense, it was a voice to the nation. I suppose that in our world we understand this. When the United Nations decides to act or to invade or when the Allies took decisive action in the Second World War, there's always a lesson to other nations that if we go down the path of wickedness, uh, if we break and violate the normal norms of human behaviour, then there are likely to be a, there's likely to be a price that is paid, and that is what happens in the land of Canaan. So as we reflect on that, the explicit nature of God, this is a matter of judgment. The exceptional nature, uh, this is an exceptional moment when the normal rules of war are to some extent suspended and a decisive victory has to be scored over Canaan. And an example to, nature, to nations in the future that God will deal with them in his own way and in his own time. When I think about the Second World War, I think a lot about it because I was born in April 1945. I was actually born on the 12th of April, the day that President Roosevelt um, died. The two events were unconnected, of course. But I think because I was born in that era and then grew up in the era of prosperity that followed it, the remarkable recovery between the 1940s and the 1950s, which has given me and my generation and many of you the kind of life that we have enjoyed. I think I have been kind of fascinated by what happened uh, in that period. And uh, when uh, Truman's advisors brought to him the news of what had happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he said something like, this is the greatest thing in history. Well, I'm sure he came to revise that view downwards, but there was a sense of relief that at last they could see an end to this terrible war and that they could turn uh, their ingenuity to better and more positive things. And so when I reflect on the invasion of Canaan, I think about the way in which the modern world, certainly in Europe, has been born. And out of the devastation of war, we have come into a good and plentiful land for which we ought to be thankful. And maybe I could just uh, draw this to a conclusion by thinking just for a moment or two about the reality of invasion. The invasion of Britain is something that we might think about. This country hasn't been invaded in a thousand years. In 1588, the Spanish Armada set sail, actually, on July the 10th, 1588. And it was sent by the King of Spain to invade England to replace Elizabeth I to restore the Catholic monarchy and reverse the emerging reformation of the church. It failed and the Armada was destroyed 
by force of arms and by a major fierce storm in the English Channel, which blew it off course. And many reforming churchmen thank God for that deliverance. And as I've been saying, nearer to our own time, many people in this country felt that way in 1940, when the evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force from Dunkirk and the stunning battle of the, the st stunning victory of the RAF in the ensuing Battle of Britain prevented a Nazi invasion and subjugation of these islands. What Churchill foresaw in that would have been the end of Christian civilization. And here we are in a country to whom God has been good, not least in blessing us for centuries with Christian renewal, freedom, democracy, a passion for social justice and the rule of law. And we need to ask ourselves, will it always be so? The tragic history of Israel is that pioneering their way into the land of Canaan that God had promised and setting up a theocracy as he intended, they frequently fell short of it. Indeed, sadly, within a relatively short period of time, they turned to the same kind of idolatrous worship that the Canaanites were guilty of. Clearly, with COVID and Brexit, we are currently in a time of political unrest and significant uncertainty. It may be a time of great opportunity for this country, but it may prove to be nothing more than a transient or minor ripple in our national life, signifying not very much at all. We may want to consider whether, in another sense, we are killing our children intellectually and spiritually. It is not unreasonable to suggest that the educational policies of both Westminster and the Scottish parliaments involve the effective brainwashing of our children and youth in a wide range of secular dogmas, including atheistic speculations about the origin of life and the universe and diminishing the fabric of the traditional family. These initiatives pose serious challenges to Christian revelation and teaching. And if the Bible is to, believed, to be believed, particularly in passages like this, will not pass without consequences. I am sometimes haunted by some words I heard some years ago in a message from the great American evangelist Billy Graham, speaking about the morality of America, and this would have been back in the 60s or 70s, he said, if God does not judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we cannot know in advance what God is doing in our nation and will yet do. But what we do know is that we need Christians with the confident faith of Joshua and an unshakable belief in God's sovereignty over all things. When we trust him and live in faith as a witness to the power of the gospel of Christ, there are no walls or barriers in our lives, communities and nation which will not crumble before the onward and confident march of his church here and in the world. In the New Testament, the taking of Canaan is likened to the spiritual parable, the, the spiritual uh, picture of inheriting all that God has given us, the spiritual highlands brought to us in Christ. And to enter into them as Christians 
living out our faith to the full. Thank you for listening. And I do trust this message with its solemn undertones will be both a blessing and a challenge to us. Amen. Thank you, Alistair, for addressing such a, an important um, but difficult topic. We really appreciate it. Let's close in prayer before we sing our final hymn, Only a Holy God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are kind, you are holy, and you are just. And Lord, you have, an, have a magnificent cosmic plan for this universe. Thank you for giving us the freedom to explore these difficult questions and for giving us an increased confidence in your word and your character tonight, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you hate evil. And one day, it's going to be eradicated once and for all. Lord, we long for that day. Thank you that, that you desire it far more than we do. We praise you, Father, in our Saviour's name. Amen.